Infinite Horrors Podcast. Fucking hate puppets. They're horrible. Imagine a face full of pimples and somebody squishing their face so all of them leave a string of pus on your face. All right. Good to see you again, Maya. How you been? I don't know. The world is pretty horrific. We've been dealing with a lot of real life horror. It's always good to get into the insane escapism of Junjito. So, <laughs> absolutely. Well, we can just jump right in and not talk about any of that awful stuff and talk about fun, awful stuff. This week, we're going to be going over the horror manga icon Junji Ito. The sweetest man who creates <laughs> some of the worst horrors imaginable, but I appreciate it. Some of these folks involved in the horror game, despite the stuff they create, end up being the most empathetic, kind human beings you can come across. And uh, for those of you not familiar, Junji Ito is a huge cat lover. And you can go on YouTube and find these really heartwarming videos of him raiding cats, both in anime, but also fans will send him pictures of their cats. And he'll go about describing them and giving them all sorts of like eldritch characteristics. And he's just a funny, nice guy, it appears. A big cat down himself. You know, yeah. <laughs> prefers uh, one over the other. Like, you know, try not to play at favorites, but we all have our favorites. Oh, man, I definitely had a favorite cat growing up. I had I had two cats and one was just a big bitch and the other one was very friendly. But I feel like that's how it always goes. Right. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. They all have their personalities, you know. Yeah. I've only ever had one at a time. But mm-hmm. So Junji Ito, if no one is familiar with horror comics, manga, graphic novels, is a big contemporary horror graphic novelist in Japan. And I think you probably know more about his life and times if you want to give a brief biography. Yeah, sure. Super brief. So he was born July 1st, 1963. Before he became a manga artist, he, he was drawing and, and writing stories and such from a very young age, but decided to go the practical route early in life, went to vocational school, and directly out of that was a dental technician, which is all sorts of creepy on its own. But while he was a dental technician, he decided to really take his craft of uh, drawing and, and storytelling in earnest. And after only three years of being a dental technician, sold his first story. His first story was sold to a monthly publication in Japan called Monthly Halloween. It's a shoujo publication, which... Was that the one he won the uh, Kazuo Mezu Award for? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. And for anyone who doesn't know, Kazuo Mezu is a really big horror manga artist as well. One of uh, Junji Ito's cited inspirations who was really big for his Catboy Demon comics that was kind of like a much darker version of the Crypt Keeper. Oh, interesting. And like actively involved himself in the stories. And it was very, it's, he, he comes from like a dark place. If you've <laughs> read Ito's stories and not Umezo's, then you should. Same with uh, Hideshihino, who's also been cited as an inspiration for storytelling by Ito. And I think Kino also is a fan of Ito's, so I think it goes both ways. That's beautiful. But Love it when that happens. He has like much more colorful, surreal horror. Right. I think that his stories are quite amazing. So Yeah, I have not come across a Junji Ito illustration with color yet. I mean, outside of the covers of some of the collections, yeah. typically it's all ink and pen, which mm-hmm. looks beautiful. Traditional. I would recommend any of you listening to this right now, unless you're driving, to pull up some images of his art while we're talking here. It'll give you a better sense of the aesthetic that this guy goes for and masters completely. So from a background standpoint, obviously his life is much more rich and detailed than that, but I couldn't find much more than that on the internet. So what we did before we decided to record this podcast is we went over a number of his story collections, but also his longer form fiction. We went over Shiver, which is a short story collection. We went over Gyo, which is a novel, more or less. You know, it's just one long continuous story. Tomi, 
Uzumaki, and then we did Frankenstein. It's a collection of stories, but we were just interested in his graphic interpretation of Frankenstein, primarily because, you know, he's well known for like his own storytelling, but also his unique sense of body horror. And what a better way to display that than Frankenstein's monster. And it's a quick, short story graphic novel, but it's one of the most beautiful drawings of Frankenstein's monster out there. Honestly, I I think it takes the book one step further and makes it just a little bit more horrifying. But again, he's a master of body horror. And he's actually said multiple times that a big reason he loves doing body horror is because he believes the human brain is the most horrifying part of the body. And the way to realize that is through the human body. And therefore, he focuses on transfiguration and mutation of the human body. And like, I know that when he was writing Slug Girl, he does things like look in the mirror and moves his tongue around and goes, oh, my tongue kind of looks like a slug. And then he says, oh, it would be creepy if my tongue was replaced by a slug and then goes and writes, which is such a unique thing. And I I think that really shows through in all of his writing because all of it is very, how can I take this mundane thought and then create horror from it? And, you know, we'll talk about that with like Uzumaki because spirals are everywhere, you know, and then he just takes the idea that spirals right. are everywhere and runs with it. It's great. I love it. <laughs> it's it's so fun. Absolutely. Yeah. One of my favorite things about the short story collections is that he'll give a page after the story is done of like where this idea came from. Like you were saying, wiggling his tongue in his mouth and it looks like a slug, Uh, you know, a childhood friend dying in his past that influences a certain story or like for hanging blimp. He got the story idea from a dream he had as a child that just stuck with him forever. And it's really really awesome because that's not something you typically get in a lot of short story collections. I know Stephen King did that for, I believe it was, I believe it was Night Shift in that after every short story, he'd give a little blurb about where it came from. And as someone who likes to create my own things. It's really cool to see where your idols, where they get their ideas. I'm always struck by how simple the seed for that idea is. Totally. After reading all of these again, because I've read them when I was a kid, but it's been a very long time. I caught myself going around and going, oh, that would be a very cool body horror transformation when I I saw something random, like the hornets outside or something like that. You know, it would just kind of be a passing thought. Mm-hmm. Not that I have the talent to write a good body horror story, but, you know, I think it's I think it's fun. I think it's a... F- Don't doubt yourself. I bet you could. I've heard your story idea. I like them. I think the um, idea of just looking at the world in this very surreal way while being such a grounded and normal, sweet person is fascinating and really just a testament to his abilities. And, Absolutely. you know, obviously... A budding talent, which was recognized by the greatest horror manga artist at that time, which was Mezo. Right. Junji was very influenced by traditional Japanese ghost stories, which are kaiden, and specifically looks at, or has at least mentioned, the big three ghost stories. Um, I can only remember the names of two of them, which is like the Yotsuya mm-hmm. kaiden and then the Bancho uh Sarayashiki. And then I know the third ghost is Otsuya, I think, or something similar. One of those is the grinning girl. The ones I'm remembering, because I know those are the three female ghosts, and they're like the three big traditional ghost stories. But also these have been adapted and changed multiple times. So I might just be thinking of a different version from you. But I know that one is the samurai's wife, that gets disfigured by a jealous love prospect and then killed due to her grotesque face. And then she haunts her previous husband and gets him to kill his new wife and family. It's very Macbeth to me. Oh, man. That's one of the stories included in uh, the film Quidon. Oh! It's very Yeah, that's like one of the big original... 1700s ghost stories that was big in kabuki theater and stuff cool and then the other one is the servant girl who accidentally breaks a plate but the master of the house says that 
he'll spare her the death sentence if she marries him. And she says no. So he kills her and throws her down a well. And then she comes back and like counts to nine because there were 10 plates and then screams instead of 10. And the way that she was exercised was somebody finding, quote unquote, the 10th plate. And as I keep reading like all of these specifically like ghost stories, not the malicious spirit, which are the, are they Yume? Is that what they're called? Yeah. Yeah. The mischievous and malicious spirits uh, that come back to take revenge. But just like ghosts that are specifically ghosts. There's a very strong pattern of violence against women and then those women coming back for revenge. I feel like Tomi is a really big extension of that. Let's break into Tomi because Tomi was his first story that won the award at Monthly Halloween, the award from his idol ended up being like the first Tomy story. And he was encouraged to flesh out that idea by his mentor. So it's one of his more popular works. It's been adapted into a slew of various movies. I'm not as familiar with all the stories as you are. So take it away. Tell us, who is Tomy? What's it about? So that's kind of part of it, right? Because I think a big part of it is that she's an enigma. She doesn't really have a backstory, She's just seemingly perpetually the same age. Her personality really changes. Her motivations change throughout all these stories. The stories are really only connected by the appearance and circumstances of her. So even when we get a quote unquote backstory, it's all revealed to be fake. Like, you know, it starts off with her dad because she's angry at a fellow classmate because she's been interfering with her succubus-like tendencies of making men fall in love with her and then rejecting them or like Mm. trying to belittle them. And to be fair, this is only half of the personality of Tomi. It switches back and forth between doing nothing to incite violence for men and then actively trying to drive them to insanity to incite violence. It's very strange. There's no real consistency there. Right. But essentially, there's this one set of stories where she's in a classroom. She like seduces her teacher. He becomes this devoted servant to her and ends up playing the part of her father to continually run experiments and stuff like that. And it. Oh, geez. So we never really get a true backstory. And like that was the one teased backstory, but it turns out to be a continuance of like another story. So Junji Ito plays mind games. It's even better that way. I know we've talked about It Follows and you don't have the highest opinion of that. But I think what appeals to me so much about that story is that you never get an origin for the ghost or the thing, the entity that tracks them. Also, it's the appeal of the Joker as well from Batman is that he's never given a backstory, you know, up until this movie came out. And, you know, that's a whole other conversation. But I think not having a backstory is in its favor, for sure. That's like my main reason for loving Art the Clown in Terrifier. The main horror Mm -hmm. is him not having a backstory. Because there's no motivation. And without motivation, you can't can't rationalize anything that's happening. Exactly. Uh, Terrifier, that's that like black and white cr- yeah, crown. Yeah, it was a spin right, from that the VHS, real big. like anthology. Yeah. Yes. But Tomi is essentially a girl who's very beautiful and drives men to fall in love with her in a trance like state and they'll destroy their lives trying to please her, but then go so insane they have the strong nerve to dismember her like hack and slash her Mm -hmm. to smithereens. And at one point, a man pounds her into a pulp. And every time a segment of her is divided, it regrows and regenerates into a full copy of herself. And then on top of that, those copies try to kill each other because for some reason, there can only be one Tomi at a time. So they're all driven to attack each other, which is why I think I told you or at least wrote it down when we were writing together, that it reminds me of that episode of X-Files with the worms who have to destroy each other in the Arctic episode with the um, aggressive parasite. Sure. Yeah, so I really think that it connects a lot to those kaiden we were just talking about and this female revenge, but kind of twisted, so it's less 
straightforward of like a man doing her wrong because she kind of instigates but also is some kind of malicious spirit but at the same time these men are committing she's pushing these people to be evil yeah but she's like a trickster spirit and these men kind of succumb to her manipulations and such and then create horrible acts and then exactly you know in a with a knife usually which is you know also reminiscent of a lot of sexually frustrated killings in real life Mm -hmm. which i think ties into the story and also she's kind of like the organism the hydra that can regenerate in full copies yeah but also like the greek myth where the only way you can kill a copy or a head from the hydra is by burning the stump and you have to burn her flesh so Ah, i like that and I, i would like to think that junji do chose that for a reason, but you know, I could be overreading. No, I love that. I would absolutely agree. In the one story that I read of which one of did Tomy's, you read? I read uh, the painter. That's the one that's included oh, in Shiver. Shiver. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the short synopsis of this story is that there's a very talented but incredibly self-important egotistical painter who currently is working with this blonde model. And he's at an exhibition of his work when Tomy shows up and he doesn't know who this person is, but Tomy immediately catches his eye. And Tomy goes to him and says like, oh, your paintings are okay. Your your, your model's kind of ugly and she looks like a bit of a dumbass. But, you know, I guess if that's who you want to paint, you can paint her. The painter leaves and Tomy's words stick in his brain and he can't get her out of his mind. And eventually he fires his model based off of Tomy's manipulations and then goes to Tomy and is like, I want to paint you. I want you to be my model. And so Tomy's like, yeah, maybe I'll give you a chance. And then so he does this painting of Tomy and, you know, it, it looks very much similar to the way Junji Ito draws her. And Tomy's reaction is, you didn't even capture a tenth of my beauty. Like you, you did a horrible job. Yeah. And this devastates the painter who's built himself up to be like this wildly talented guy. And to and your point, he's now this, insane with love. He's insane <laughs> with love and he's insane with his sense of self. And she's challenged this. And I feel mm-hmm. like, and, and you know, and, and she goes, I'm going to go find an artist worthy of me. And this drives this painter absolutely fucking nuts. And mm-hmm. he goes to the artist's house and it's this sculptor and he opens the door and the sculptor is clearly just like in the midst of some internal hell. And he's like, is, is, is she in here? With like right. broken versions of Tomy that he's sculpted. Which is kind of a really interesting foreshadowing of it what is. happens to Tomy right after where like, you know, the sculptor clearly he's built a lot of sculptures of Tomy and destroyed them. And there's this beautiful, I, I want to say shot, but it's not a shot. It's not a movie. It's this beautiful panel of all these broken pieces of Tomy sculptures all over the ground. So the painter in the midst of this jealous rage kills the sculptor and then finds Tomy in the back of the room. And Tomy's, you know, digging into him, ripping into this artist. And so the artist, like you say, grabs a knife and chops her to bits. Mm -hmm. I feel like she is in that sense, you know, I started off thinking she was closer to like the Kaidan stories, but maybe she is more of like the Yude, you know, vengeful spirit, kind of inhuman. Like that um, story of the spider woman where she appears as like this beautiful girl but it's really to lure men to their deaths and she's actually a giant spider in disguise. Mm -hmm. It's like the same thing because every time she's painted, like truly painted and truly photographed, you see the deformed, like... Right, her her, her monstrous self. Yeah. Right. Another enigma of Tomi is that she rejects those images and it drives her insane. And this is the one time she can regenerate when she's not physically cut up. So she Mm -hmm. gets driven into a state of insanity in which 
creates a spontaneous asexual reproduction, essentially. And she starts splitting and that like makes it worse, which is very interesting. It's one of it's like a very complex set of stories for not being a continuous novel. And I think it's brilliant, probably one of my favorites that he's ever done. I know everyone loves Uzumaki, but I think I prefer Tomi. That's a great segue into Uzumaki for sure, because that is that was my gateway manga because I'd never read manga before that. And, uh, you know, first someone recommended start with Uzumaki <laughs> yeah. to see if it has any kick. It does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. This is your brain on Junji Ito. Just like a egg, egg growing head, an eye in it. <laughs> your, your head is turning into a spiral that consumes you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Today's episode of the Infinite Horrors podcast is brought to you by Exalted Funeral, the one-stop shop for all your imaginative needs. At Exalted Funeral, you can pick up the latest issue of Infinite Worlds, Infinite Horrors, or any other zines available to satisfy your otherworldly and gruesome desires. Yes, and for all you tabletop adventurers tuning in, take your next campaign to the darkest reaches of the mind with Exalted Funeral's rich variety of dark fantasy, horror, and occult-based scenarios. And don't forget to check out their merch. Make your outsides as weird as your insides with their selection of shirts, sweaters, and even custom dice. All this and more can be found at exaltedfuneral.com. Follow them on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Exalted Funeral, all one word. And be sure to sign on to their mailing list to stay up to date on new releases, restocks, and other news. Thanks again to Exalted Funeral for sponsoring this episode. So Uzumaki is this brilliant, probably, I mean, uh, you know, we mentioned a few of Junji Ito's influences before from the manga world. One of his other influences in his work is Lovecraft. Got to mention it when we mentioned Lovecraft. The guy was horrible. The guy was a dick. Yeah. It's unfortunate that such an interesting imagination is tied to inextricably to some pretty monstrous thoughts. Yeah. And a big way that Junji Ito cites his change in thought process after reading Lovecraft when he was younger is he says that, you know, Japanese ghost stories and horror are all very tied to people and places. And Lovecraft allowed him to think on larger scales and sort of Hmm. larger horrors. So things that influence larger groups of people which, you know, ties into Uzumaki and also sort of causes him to like branch out. And I think he has, or at least was at some point working on a manga that sort of extends to like universal scales. So, you know, the influence is there. Luckily, Junji, though, is a much nicer human being. (laughs) So, Yes. So Uzumaki is on that kind of Lovecraftian wavelength. It takes place at a coastal town. And all these townspeople are going about their day, normal stuff happening. And out of kind of the blue, inexplicably, some of these townspeople start seeing spirals. You know, in everyday life, like you said earlier, spirals are everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's like that golden ratio thing, like how your coffee swirls or the structure of hurricanes. absolutely brilliant if you think about it, because if, like, especially young people are reading this, but even I, like started to get affected going, oh yeah, right now, because I'm reading this, I'm noticing more spirals than I would. Uh, And like kind of thought it was fun to like pick out the ones I don't see all the time. But you can imagine younger kids reading these because I'm I'm sure younger kids do. I was one of those weird kids, right? And just being super affected by this because it's essentially the graphic novel version of Breaking the Fourth Wall. Hmm. Interesting. It's like if you have somebody who's more affected by this and they're starting to see them everywhere, they're going to go a little nuts and freak out and maybe have nightmares for a little bit. It's it's a very effective manipulation. It's very cool. And I think that comes from his talent of like taking the mundane everyday thing and making it horrific and, you know, leaning into his strengths of body horror. So, yes, continue. It's essentially it follows this young girl as the town descends into body horror and psychological madness. Mm -hmm. I believe it's her boyfriend's father who becomes obsessed with the spirals and like, what's that food? It's their little, it's like a radish. The fiddly ferns. Okay, the ferns with the pink spirals. And then also the fish cakes. Yeah, the fish cakes. 
Right, right. And like he'll go nuts if he's not served spirals. And it's funny because mm-hmm. then you get these like beautiful little fantastic versions of a biography at the end in like his very scratchy drawing style of him going, when I was making Uzumaki, I had to study the spiral. So I only ate spiral foods and I was constantly obsessed. And I think it's, I think it's like <laughs> the little bit of humor that he also brings to a lot of his work, even though he, he prefers not to make things too humorous. He's definitely making that connection and satirizing the characters he's already presented to you, which I think is fun. Definitely. And then, you know, these people get obsessed with spirals, right? Mm-hmm. And then eventually this leads them to become spirals themselves. And we all see that like somehow the big lake, the dragonfly lake in the center is tied to this, especially with how all of the cremated bodies of people who eventually die from this curse of the spiral will spiral up in the air, their ashes will, and then those ashes will all fall into the dragonfly lake, which then has repercussions later on. Yeah, for all of you who haven't read this, I don't want to give it away so much. That's not giving anything away. Okay. But I, I would, I would at all. It's just a brilliant, brilliant manga. You know, again, I'm only speaking for myself, but it was my entry into this whole wonderful world of, of Japanese storytelling. Especially if you're a fan of like the sci-fi, ed- edge of the sci-fi horror mix up, because I think there's a lot of sci-fi towards the end and kind of that influence Mm -hmm. he has because he'll say that he likes horror the most but he loves sci-fi the second most in his life and his interviews Mm. so that's very much there it's not as much as Kino's influences but it's still there by the end so if we want to keep the ending a secret then I'll just say that you know it's not pure body horror and it's very coherent story compared to a lot of his work right this unknowable Lovecraft-esque entity, which has, again, no real explanation that just happens upon a town and alters everyone's perception of what life is. And it's brilliant. People's minds spiraling, more or less. Yeah, literally. And, you know, there there are definitely favorite parts of this. I don't know if you have a favorite part. Oh, boy. I would say my favorite part is the lighthouse. Yeah. The lighthouse and the imagery within the lighthouse. It's very effective. Something I love in movies and books uh, is spatial dilation, Mm -hmm. where they enter the lighthouse and they're going up these stairs and they seem to last forever. But the lighthouse is just a normal size lighthouse, you know? It's kind of like in The Shining when Stanley Kubrick purposefully filmed the hotel in a way that it's very disorienting and certain hallways that used to go left end up going right or have different paintings in them that all sort of like spatial disorientation i think that's that's my favorite part of, of uzumaki in a testament to his drawing style he essentially does what we were talking about with hitchcock and camera angles you know he does the same thing mm-hmm. he has this perspective use that forces you to look down this stairway that has high contrast and it's going to this complete blackness or forces you to look up into like this oncoming horror. And, you know, in all of these large panels where he wants to emphasize body horror, he'll like blow up that image, increase the detail, but also increase the contrast and quality of his shading and just go hyper detailed in like what I've always said has reminded me of Charles Burns's high contrast style it creates this emphasis on that body horror which is super effective really beautiful totally so detailed yeah if none of you listening have read black hole by charles burns read black hole by charles burns i implore you it's brilliant it's great it's good body horror it's just it's top of the line graphic novel stuff anyway and (laughs) had to had to slip that in there no i I, completely agree especially if you like Ito's stuff, right? But I would say my favorite part of Uzumaki is the mother after the boyfriend's father passes away when Mm -hmm. she starts going insane because she can't stand spirals. So she takes the whirls off of her fingertips and then eventually stabs herself in the ear because of that part of your ear that spirals, which then causes her to have vertigo which is right. And it's like eternal spiraling, spiraling. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it it doesn't fully feel like you're spiraling, but you get that dizzy sense, you know? So sure. It's more of of a perpetual feeling of needing to fall forward, but it affects like 
your ability to walk and makes you quite dizzy. So I think that's a beautiful sequence of insanity that still plays into that, even though she's trying to actively avoid the curse. It's just very well done. It's beautiful. It's such a well-told story, and and it's it's beautifully drawn. All the spiral symbolism is just very smart stuff, very clever. And so much water. In Junji Ito, at least in the two like longer-form fictions we've read, you know, there's that dragonfly lake, and it's a coastal town. There's this common thread of fear of oceans or fear of large bodies of water, I feel. If you're an island nation next to one of the biggest trenches, because it's a subduction zone in the Ring of Fire, and Japan is near the Marianas Trench, which is the deepest trench because of the angle of subduction happening there. Yeah. That causes a lot of tsunamis, because tsunamis are underwater earthquakes that cause a displacement of water vertically that then propagates onto land, right? So... Yeah. If you are in a country where that is a regular occurrence and you're also near one of the deepest points of the ocean, I think that's valid. Like, I think that's a fair fear, you know? Of course all your fear comes from water. I think that itself is a good transition to the next book we read for this, uh, Gyo. Love Gyo. It's very bioorganic horror, like the, uh-huh. the biomechanic stuff. And I really think of Giger a lot when I think of the biomechanic horror style. Okay. For those unfamiliar, what are some examples? Oh, H.R. Giger um, got his big break when he did the Monsters for Alien or the Aliens mm-hmm. for Alien. Um, so like, he did all uh, those. The, the, Z- the Xenomorph, right? Yeah, the Xenomorphs, yeah. which are very cool. And if you ever get to see the behind the scenes of that makeup, that's honestly scarier than the film to me, just being stuck in a tiny space in unbreathable makeup. Oh my God, no. But very interesting. And that design for the Xenomorph was actually taken from the uh, plans for Dune that never got finalized when Jodorowsky was trying to make Dune because he was hired to make all of the art for like the emperor and his castle and everything. So yeah, a great documentary. He has very biomechanical dark art and you see a lot of gears and organs mixing together. So very biomechanical. And in this sense, Gyo does the same thing where you kind of get this steampunk horrific mechanism which was originally an act of war. So we can even read into that because I know that a lot of, not that Japan has has had a lot of time to recover from the horrors of World War II, but a lot of his influences were very recognized as post-war artists. Yeah. And that includes uh, Umezo. So that's interesting to me, that, that military influence and that atomic horror idea of, Things mutating in an unnatural way. A lot of like Godzilla vibes. Yeah. Ah, Gogeta. I love Gogeta. Yeah. (laughs) Like humans being punished for their crimes against nature via technology. You know, in in Gyo, the scientist is making this kind of parasitic apparatus with the intention of using it in warfare somehow. As a bioweapon because they figured out a virus that causes animals to swell up with a putrid gas and release this virus that causes a transmission that way, but they couldn't get dogs to run far enough into enemy lines before dying and emitting this gas. So they put it on a mechanical set of legs that's powered by the gas in order to make it run into enemy lines. (laughs) But that warship carrying those prototypes was sunk in the ocean, which is how people think that this horror starts. However, on further examination going forward, the mechanical legs aren't truly mechanical and they're sort of its own organism because they're not Mm man-made. And that's very clearly depicted later on when the crazy uncle starts making his own versions and they're very different. And the original horrors from the deep start fighting the human-made mechanical version and I think that's brilliant. Again, biomechanical horror is amazing. And I think it's a very, it, at its heart, this is a fart joke turned horror, right? Like it's, Oh man, it's, 100%. It's, <laughs> uh, it's like this, the horror of bioterrorism, the horror of abuse 
of animals and like the horror of the town being set upon by zombie fish that are just farting that are it's just like farting. the whole t- and eventually all of japan right because yeah. you know the whole nation is taken over by these little stinky farting parasitic fish hybrids between the drawing and the sound effects and his stylization of sound effects that is like so easily conceptualized and i think that was a really yes. effective part of this but my favorite was the great white shark oh man Junji Ito was extremely scared of great white sharks growing up from a viewing of Jaws when he was younger. So there's this amazing scene in this where, you know, classic setup, whole bunch of people swimming off the coastline and shark fin pops out of the water. So they all scream and, and yell and splash and get to shore and they think they're safe. One guy's like, oh, I'm so glad I caught that. And then the fin just gets closer and closer and they're like, well, what could be happening here? And, uh, and we see your perspective shot where you get those speed lines as well that right. kind of force that anxiety and you get that mm-hmm. very dead on fin with all these people like struggling to run away, but they look smaller with the perspective. It's great. Right. And then this great white shark gets on land with these little spider legs. And eats all not the people. Not very little. <laughs> well, no, not yet. Sorry. Yeah, you're right. Not, <laughs> not, little, not little for the great white shark. For the other fish, they're they're little, but for yeah. the great white shark, it's quite huge. Just imagine the other mother from Coraline's legs at the end. It's very yes. similar. Right. It's like that viscerally terrifying, sharp insect-like creation. Right. <laughs> for some reason, I think of like. <laughs> What's that Pixar movie with the monsters? Why am I being such... How can I not... uh, Monsters, Inc.? Monsters, Inc. That's the one. (laughs) You know, (laughs) monsters... Duh. You know, the boss in that, like the the leader of the corporation, who's that like spider guy with the big, you know, it's like legs like that. If you see creepy spindly legs, they're evil. They must be. It's now a rule. Run away. (laughs) If you can. Because, you know, these are biomechanical shark monsters. Right. And... They do look a lot like Bruce. If you're also a nerd and love looking at behind-the-scenes stuff, I another great thing to look into is the making of the mechanical shark Bruce in Jaws because it's mm-hmm. phenomenal. It's like a crazy work of art. I, I love it to death, but it's that sort of like exposed side of mechanisms, right. I think, must also have influenced him to like help guide that mechanical rib cage that encloses all of these creatures and the half rotted sense and all of this. It's very interesting. Right. Lots of nature versus man and machine. And it's a theme I'm, I'm all about. For the sake of time, we should perhaps go to Shiver. Shiver. Shiver is actually a good thing to talk about because the last story in that, Greased, yes. is the one... So Greased is a story about a girl who has a father and brother, and they're all living in an apartment coated in grease. Everything's soaked in grease because her father owns like a fry shop and her brother suddenly becomes addicted to drinking salad oil and becomes a human pustule, essentially, who later gets chopped up and fried and served as meat to his customers by Mm, his father. And then the father tries to force feed the daughter at night to do the same thing. But the reason I'm bringing this up, Junji has cited multiple times that this is what he thinks is his most physiologically creepy story he's ever made because he was squeamish drawing it. It's disgusting. Because of the the pressing on the face. So imagine a face full of pimples. If you've not read this, I would absolutely go for it unless you're very squeamish. A face full of pimples being leaned over you and somebody squishing their face so all of them just leave a string of pus on your face. It's disgusting. It's terrible. It's, I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, it's disgusting. But despite him drawing these horrible, grotesque things... It's beautiful. The ink work is gorgeous. I mean, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, it's Again, these perspective shots where these monstrous creatures are always given the foreground and are always distorted to be larger and like have crazy high contrast and detail work. So the full body horror is really there. Is that your favorite story in the collection? 
No. What My is favorite your favorite story, story? Is the marionette story because again very scared by the concept of living puppets yes not in a way that gives me nightmares just if i saw a human-sized living puppet in my room i would be horrified Absolutely. and you know japan has a large rich history of puppet theater which i've already mentioned earlier mm-hmm. but with smaller puppets there's also a history of life-size puppets being controlled by multiple people so to me this also has a lot of traditional roots in that sense not to be like you know all of his stories obviously have some kind of traditional root not to say that but it's interesting like his cultural influences that were obviously there growing up because japan has a very rich cultural history are fun to see in his works to me and again with the type of traditional stories he's liked a lot of them have been puppet theater, or at least adapted to puppet theater at some point, which is interesting to me. Yeah. Um, But essentially, it's a story about a traveling puppet family that has a father that forces them into this life. They don't really want it. The brother leaves, but takes his favorite puppet, the jester. And before he leaves, he tells the little brother, you know, we don't control the puppets. The puppets control us because they're kind of being forced into this vagrant life, similar to like the traditional depiction and often racist depiction of Romani people, right? Sure. And that's how they kind of retreated and they never get to settle down. And after taking this jester puppet, the other two kids eventually leave after their dad dies and get normal jobs, but then reconnect with their brother who has this like crazy mansion and a lot of money and a full family, Mm -hmm. but is hanging from the ceiling by their joints and being controlled by servants like marionettes. Love it. And... Eventually, it comes out that the jester puppet is the one controlling the servants, controlling them, and that when the jester puppet dies, they all die. Ah. So the reality of not just the puppet's control as being a metaphor, but true, is a very freaky concept. I really like it. And the artistry and creativity around that is what makes it my favorite. What's yours? Oh, well, I was just going to say before that, like, fucking hate puppets. They're horrible. <laughs> I, I fucking hate puppets. I mean, when we were talking last night, you brought up the uncanny valley, you know, that yeah. humans being scared of things that remind us of being human, but are unhuman enough that it, it makes us unsettled. I mean, and horror movies have long had a history of using puppets as the crux of the horror from, I mean, you see that in Poltergeist. You see it in the whole Annabelle series and including, you know, that includes the Conjuring universe. Even House on Haunted Hill, you know. (laughs) Sure, sure. But my favorite in the collection, Shiver, is The Long Dream. I find that story to be super interesting. It borders on science fiction, which is probably maybe why. It does. It it appeals to me a lot. and And I get a lot of reanimator vibes from it. Essentially, what the story is, is that there's a young girl, as most of these stories begin, in a psychiatric institute. First of all, she's got this very profound fear of death. She keeps saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to turn into nothing. And there's a general theme in this story collection that death is inescapable and the existential dread that comes from that fact. And the long dream continues with this, uh, you know, this girl believes that death is visiting her. But we find out that it's not death who's visiting her, but another patient within the psychiatric institute whose condition is that every time he goes to sleep, his dreams feel longer. So at first, when he goes to sleep, he mentions that his dreams only feel, you know, regular. But every night he goes to sleep, it goes from, you know, it feels like they're five hours long, then they feel like they're days long, then months and then years. And then eventually this guy is going to bed and feeling like his dreams last in eternity. So when he and comes even back, beyond that, he feels that time too. Right, so he physically right. deforms and like kind of evolves beyond typical human appearance is right. kind of how they describe it. Yeah. And, and, you know, going along with that spatial distortion in the lighthouse in Uzumaki, the time distortion this guy feels for me is personally terrifying. For instance, he says he had a dream that lasted nine years long of the classic, like, 
uh, I didn't study enough for this exam dream. And he, and that lasted for nine years. To make it clear, these are the worst nightmares he's ever had. And yeah. start off as surrealist horrorscapes that right. you can't get away from. These are not lucid, nice dreams. Because if they were, then it would be of very sweet story. It would be nice. <laughs> well, I'm well, uh, the, the last dream he has that we that we know of is a nice dream. And that's almost oh, even that's worse, right? Is that he he wakes up and the psychiatrist has to like reorient him back into reality because him returning to the his waking life would be like if we were to revisit a dream we had 50 years ago, right? So he needs to recognize like, oh, I'm not dreaming anymore. When most of the time you experience is in a dream, your waking life becomes these little blinks. And when the doctor finally gets him back into reality, this man suffering from this condition is convinced that him and uh, the girl in the room afraid of death had been married and lived like thousands of years happily married together. And so he wakes up and realized this whole wonderful fantasy he had had with this young girl living like a beautiful married life was all a dream and wasn't real. And it shatters him. And he tries to go to the girl to be like, you were the love of my life. And the girl obviously has no fucking clue what this guy is talking about. And is being run at by like, uh, again, like very similar to his Frankenstein's creature artwork kind of horrifying monster. <laughs> right. Some physically grotesque, psychotic man. That night after that incident, he goes to sleep for the eternal dream. And he doesn't wake up. His body, which at that point is not even human anymore, dissolves into dust and all it leaves behind are these little crystals. And the doctor decides to take one of these crystals and put it inside the girl who's afraid of death. And his thinking is, if I give you the condition that this guy had, you'll never feel like you die because you'll be in your dreams eternally. And, uh, you know, the doctor's assistant at the end is like, you've doomed her. You've doomed her soul to this. Yeah. And there's like a pattern of medical morality in a lot of his stories. Totally. That's a repeating thing, too. Yes. Yeah. Like, just because you can, does it mean you should? <laughs> Sorry. Just to quickly, like, tie in some medical horror here. There's a story in Uzumaki where there are a bunch of pregnant women who act like female mosquitoes and drink the blood of other patients in the hospital and then cause the doctor to go insane and start serving the placentas that are growing all over the place to patients because the placenta is the most uh, healthy part of the human body and like will get everyone better, but it's just cursing them more. And he goes insane and starts trying to put the babies back into the womb and everything. And it's that's very reanimator to me, I think, yeah. the energy of Mad Doctor, if we're going to go into that. Totally. But also reminds me of the Yamamba, who are similar to like Bluebeard's Castle type of thing, where you have nice old woman in this case who kill men, but, you know, do the whole, you know, I'm going to take care of you, but don't look in my back room. And then it's a bunch mm -hmm. of dismembered corpses. So, yeah. Yeah, just to tie that in. No, love it. <laughs> love it. You know, Junji Ito, as a former dentist, probably knows what it's like to put people through suffering. You know, a dental technician, <laughs> I should say, is to put people through suffering under the guise of, you know, treatment. The one thing about the long dream I'd love to touch on, and the last thing I'll say about it, is that I love that it presents immortality through dreams or through an alternate reality mm. as horror and a hellscape. Because when that Black Mirror episode, San Junipero, came out, and kind of posited that, oh, we can just transfer your consciousness to this 1980s Southern California paradise forever. So you don't have to leave your loved ones. I left that being like, that is horrible. That is a prison. What happens when you want to quit? Can you quit? I don't know. I always found San Junipero to be this terrifying story under the guise of like the kind of this upbeat, you two can spend eternity in this like digital afterlife anyway. So I think I was to too busy being excited about a lesbian couple. 
Oh, 100%. I, I, I'm not saying I don't like the episode. I, th- I think it's great. No, I'm, it's I'm just saying that I'm very gay and therefore was blinded to the horror aspect because I was just too focused on the gayness. Sure. But actually, if you say that, then that reminds me of that video game that came out a while ago. I think it's Soma. I think the one I'm thinking of is Soma where like all of these consciousness is are like uploaded into various computers and then they kind of like fuse with human bodies and it's this immense horror and like there's a disconnect between uh, identifying that you're a machine with a human consciousness so it's like the horror of realizing that you're not human and that you've you're just a consciousness uploaded into a machine. So I feel like that ties into it too. I haven't played that game. I love horror video games and yeah, that sounds great. I'd love to play that. I'm too stuck on Civilization Six these days to do anything else. It's horrible. <laughs> anyway. It's addictive. Oh, horribly. Anyway, we're getting a little over time here and there's still more stories we can go over. Is there anything else you'd like to, any other story you'd like to touch on? Um, no, but I will say that the only puppets I accept are Jim Henson's puppets. And oh. I before I cause any harm to his legacy, he is a very good puppeteer and I love him. And he doesn't create creepy human-sized human marionettes. <laughs> no, he's a pretty friendly dude. Yeah, very good stuff. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, you know, Junji Ito is a wonderful artist and storyteller and a good gateway for all of you who are not familiar with manga to get into manga. He's got a plethora of shit you can get into. Yeah. So if you don't really want horror, there are options. Right. Because Sam introduced me to his cat diaries that are like autobiographical (laughs) of him, his wife and his cats, Yon and Moo, which are very cute. And have the same hyper contrast detailed stylization of his art. So if you want to just appreciate his art, those are there, but they're not horror, but they're cute, you know? Got it. All right. Junji Ito. Great artist. We love him. I'm sure he'll come up as a reference multiple times. Definitely. This was a lot of fun. Infinite Horrors Magazine is a full color ad-free print magazine from the creators of Infinite Worlds. You can get your signed and hand-numbered direct edition copy of Infinite Horrors Number 1 plus Infinite Horrors merch at infinitehorrorsmagazine.com. You can also get the newsstand edition at exaltedfuneral.com. Be sure to check out the Infinite Worlds podcast, as well as the Infinite Worlds magazines. Find us on social media at Infinite Horrors Magazine or Infinite Worlds Magazine. Also, feel free to visit infinitehorrorsmagazine.com or infiniteworldsmagazine.com. And you can follow me online on Instagram at heavy underscore metal underscore fruit. And you can follow me on Instagram at horrorsamw. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.